I want to single out a group of people in our church. I want to single out those of you who in this place in your life, you feel sorrowful and you feel dejected. Those of you who are grieving this morning, if that's you, I want you to listen to me. If that's not you, it should be. If that's not you, it should be, because Jesus says that kingdom happiness belongs to people who grieve over their sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness, for they will be comforted. And that's the main point that you should see up on the screen. That kingdom happiness belongs to people who grieve over their sin and turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, for they will be comforted. You see, the Beatitudes, they're paradoxical, aren't they? Happy are the sad. Joyful are the mournful. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us here? Blessed are the downcast. They seem backwards, doesn't it? It seems very backwards. Reality tells me that if I want to be happy, then I can't mourn. Reality tells me if I want to feel blessed and I want, to, I want to be full of happiness, I definitely can't feel dejected. If I feel those things, they aren't compatible with what the world teaches me happiness should look like. But in our text this morning, it's exactly what we read. If you haven't already, I want you to flip to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Matthew 5 Verse 4. It says there in verse 4, blessed, remember that word makarios means happy. It just means happy. Now it doesn't mean the worldly kind of happy that you and I often uh, ascribe to the word happiness, but it genuinely means happiness. It means the internal reality of your identity as a Christian in God's kingdom. That brings happiness. And it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Isn't that a great promise? See, not a lot of people in our culture want to mourn, but everybody in our culture wants to be comforted. And we want to find all of our own worldly answers for receiving comfort, don't we? I want, to find recom- I want to find comfort in relationships with other people, but I want to do it my way. I don't want to have relationships God's way. I want to make sure they're my way, right? But I want comfort all the same. I want comfort in whatever substance makes me feel better, but not the substances that God wants me to use, anyone that makes me happy, right? We all want comfort, but we don't want it the way God desires to give it. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because when we read Matthew 5, 4, we have to define exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about comfort and when we're talking about mourning. So when we look at the context of mourning in Matthew 5, we have to ask the question, what are they mourning over? We have a couple of options here when we talk about what are we mourning over. Am I, is this just general mourning? It's just just anybody all over the world has a a sense that they mourn over the loss of someone, uh, the the loss of a job. I mean, the economy right now is something to mourn over, isn't it? 
Things aren't looking too great over the next few months. Is it talking about those kind of mourning? We got to understand that as Jesus is giving the Beatitudes, and particularly in verse 4, he's not primarily talking about sad things that have happened in your life. We're not necessarily talking about sad things. We're not necessarily talking about things that the world is necessarily mourning over. There is some overlap, you, you understand. If you think of a Venn diagram, we have uh, biblical mourning and we have worldly mourning. And they're two very distinctive things, aren't they? But there is some real way these mornings overlap in the middle and you may find some similarities. But don't allow the similarities to fool you into believing that worldly mourning and godly mourning are the same thing. Now, when someone dies in our life, and although they may very well be in heaven and awaiting for our arrival, there is some common mourning in that, but there is a distinctly different mourning when you're mourning the death of a Christian, and when somebody who's not a Christian is mourning the death of that one. One mourns with hope, the other one mourns for utter loss. So you see there is a reality that there is some commonality, but two distinctly different kinds of mourning. I just want you to see that even as we jump in this morning, that the definition of mourning, although there are some real, common, even ways the world would define mourning, the definition of mourning in the Beatitudes is grieving over personal or corporate sin that's leading you to repentance. You should write that down in your notes if you're taking notes. The definition of mourning in the Beatitudes is that you're grieving over personal or corporate sin leading to repentance. Now, you may ask, well, how do you get there? Like, how do you get to that? Um, it's not just that every commentary says that, mind you, but they do. The point is, as you read all of the Gospel of Matthew up until chapter 5, Matthew is speaking about something explicitly that Jesus says over and over and over and over again. When we look at the first chapter in Matthew, what does, what does Scripture say that the name of the Messiah will be? Jesus. For he will forgive his people of their sins. Right? We're talking about sins right there in the beginning of the first chapter. Then John the Baptist come on scene, comes on to scene, and he says, like we have said almost every week since we've talked about John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where, where are we repenting from? Sin. And then Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What are we repenting from? The mournful reality that we all are separated from a holy God. And so when we read, even as we did last week in verse 3, when we look at people who are poor in spirit, why are they poor in spirit? They recognize their sinful condition before a holy God. Then now we look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, what are they mourning over? Well, why don't we take a good look at the rest of the chapters above and even the chapters below and recognize we're talking about one thing. The reality that we should mourn over our sin and that mourning and that grief and that despair ought to lead us to turning from our sin and placing our trust in Jesus. Now, you start understanding why we can be happy about something like that. Why we have a culmination of a, a bad situation and then there is a, a good outcome. You can recognize how we can start feeling and experiencing genuine kingdom happiness. But we're not there yet. I want to show you the way that mourning... 
and the way that grief over your sin throughout this sermon, but particularly here, should lead to a reality of kingdom happiness. And, and the first verse I want to give you is found in 1 Kings 21. You can jot that down in your, in your notes. 1 Kings chapter 21, uh, in verses 25 through, through 29. Now I know if you know your Bible, you're like, I don't know where you're going with Ahab. I mean, Ahab, I'm not sure I'm going to see him in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but what I want you to see is a real rea- a reality that Ahab found himself on the right side of history, even if only for a moment, because of his response to his sorrow and his mourning over sin. Now, if you know Ahab, he's one of the worst kings there was, very evil. As a matter of fact, verse 25 says it this way, there was none who sold himself, that means none who gave himself over, there was none who gave himself over to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. That's a great title to have in the Bible for you, isn't it? There is no one who is more wretched and more evil than Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Even his wife was Jezebel. This doesn't get any better for this guy, does it? Verse 26, he acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. In this context is... uh, Elijah, the prophet, going to him and pronouncing judgment on him by God. And then verse 27 says, When Ahab heard these words from Elijah, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. Okay, you don't have to know a whole lot about the Old Testament uh, ancient uh, practice of tearing your clothes and putting on sackcloth. But you can recognize that that's a pretty significant sign of mourning and repentance. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what it was. It was an Old Testament way to mourn loss. You see David doing this after he committed adultery and murdered, when he recognized that the son that he was going to have out of adultery was going to die. Uh, You see this all throughout the Old Testament. When people want to mourn, they tear their clothes, they put on sackcloth. Uh, The Ninevites did it in Jonah. When they recognized that God's hand was against them, they mourned, and their mourning caused them great grief and sorrow. And that grief and sorrow that was on the inside uh, manifested itself externally through Uh, the tearing of their clothes, putting on sackcloth, fasting and laying in sackcloth, just like Ahab does here. And in verse 28, where things get uh, helpful and real for you and I when it comes to mourning and when it comes to the kingdom happiness that God promises for those who mourn. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days. What was the rationale of God relenting from disaster in the life of a sinful man? Mourning that led to repentance. Mourning that led to repentance. I mean, there is a, a particular kind of mourning here, and I, I, want, I want you to see this, and we'll get to it even more as the sermon goes. It wasn't just that Ahab said, Rough life. God does not like me, and that makes me very upset. No, there was a mourning that said, I am uh, in the sight of the holy God of Israel, uh, completely separated, and at animosity between me and God. And that caused me 
great mourning leading to repentance. And that's when God said, Elijah, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me, how he's repented? I will not bring disaster in his days. Now we know he says he will bring it to his children, and that's why even after this, the news is a little good, but there is still more to reap in the way of their sin in the future. But all that being said, in this situation, you find Ahab recognizing his need to humble himself and repent, and that comes through his mourning that led to repentance. Verse 3 from last week, we talked about spiritual poverty and the spiritual bankruptcy of a person, of anybody who stands before uh, the God of the universe should have within their reality of their life something that should be real in their heart. Something very apparent is the fact that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they have nothing to give to God. As a matter of fact, uh, not only do they have anything positive to give God, the only things they do give over to God are things that prove their condemnation before God. And so these people, according to verse 3, are spiritually bankrupt. And what does a spiritual bankrupt life lead to? Mourning. Godly sorrow. It leads us to sorrow over our sin, over our spiritual poverty. And so in verse 3, we see the poor in spirit become those who mourn. The spiritually bankrupt become those who mourn over their sin. And mourning over our sin should always lead us to repentance And that's what I want you to put in point number one. You need to allow mourning to lead you to repentance. You need to allow mourning to lead you to repentance. Why should we allow mourning to lead us to repentance? Isn't mourning enough? It was just the question. Isn't it enough that I feel bad? You ever had that in an argument before? Anybody had that argument before? Isn't it bad enough that I feel bad? Why does I want I need to do anything else? Doesn't this prove to you uh, that I that I'm sorry? Just that I feel bad about it? Well, not not certainly. That is not the case. There are a lot of ways to mourn, isn't there? There's a lot of ways to mourn, and, and not all of those ways are godly ways to mourn. As a matter of fact, Scripture gives us ample examples of ways people mourn that are not godly. And so we must understand there is a godly way to mourn and grieve our sin that would lead us to a right response before God. And so I'd like you to flip to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians 7, we'll start in verse 8. If the Apostle Paul t- talking to the church in Corinth, he has uh, brought some things before them. He has called them out in certain sins. And he says this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. And so as their sin was brought before them, they grieved. And so you need to understand there was a grieving, but this grieving did something. Something that wasn't a worldly grief, something that was a godly grief. Because he says in verse 9, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Did you see that? You should underline that. I mean, your grief, your mourning should lead to a proper response to God, and that is to repent, that is to turn from your sin, turn from that that is grieving you. And turn to God. It says, For you felt a godly grief, 
so that you suffered no loss through us. I love that. You responded rightly to God, so this had to go no further. It says, for godly grief, verse 10, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Did you see that? You know what godly mourning looks like? Or I should say worldly mourning. You know what worldly mourning looks like? Grief and mourning that leads to regret. The fact that you mourn those things, you regret those things, but eh, what can you do about them? But godly grief, godly mourning, it, it produces repentance. It says that I'm going to repent. I can't change those things, but I can certainly turn from those things. And that those things will not continue into my future. And he says these things, they lead to repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I love this is where the happiness becomes really clear when it comes to our own grief and our own mourning that leads to repentance because we are no longer in condemnation for the things that we were mourned over. Our sin no longer maintains a wall of separation between me and my God. And so, therefore, my grief that produced repentance leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we see that worldly grief produces death, and we're going to look at verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I write to you, it was not for the sake of those who did the wrong, nor for the sake of those who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. You see, it doesn't sound a lot like the worldly counsel you would receive if you were dealing with sorrow and grief over your sin, but it is, although paradoxical, a reality that we have as Christians, is there is real comfort in those who would repent those who would recognize their mournful state is a cause of the sin in your life. That we would cause you to repent and it would cause you to receive comfort because you have reached a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now, I'd be foolish not to remind you at this point in the sermon that we're talking about a particular kind of mourning. And you always got to go back to the point. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn. What are we talking about? Those who mourn the wretched state that they're in, okay? Because you're tempted when we get into sermons like this, halfway through, your mind will start drifting off into other kinds of mourning. Well, I'm sad that my, my aunt died. Or I'm sad that my friend was diagnosed with an inoperable tumor. Okay, we're talking about a particular kind of mourning here that is necessary for you to understand if you are, number one, going to be a Christian, and even as a Christian, how you're going to recognize that there are oftentimes you're going to be broken and mourning over sin, and there is kingdom happiness there, and it comes to those who are repenting of their sin. So there's a different kind of mourning we're talking here. There's a different kind of mourning that even Jesus is talking about here. Although you will find overlaps in these mornings, and we'll get to in a moment. But we're comforted. We're comforted because we reach a repentance that Corinthians, 2 Corinthians tells us leads to salvation. And that's all about the gospel, isn't it? We've reached a morning that leads us to salvation. That is the gospel. That prior to salvation, every single soul in this room, prior to salvation, was at odds with God. You were at odds with God, and make no mistake about it, God was at odds with you. You were an enemy of God. 
God is an enemy of you. You were at enmity with God, and there was no peace between you and God. And as a matter of fact, all the enemies of God will be destroyed and cast out into utter darkness. Something to mourn about, isn't it? Well, that is the bad news when it comes to the gospel. That's where all of us set in relationship to the kingdom of God. We were enemies of the kingdom. We were a nation of ungodly people against the nation of God. And in that scenario, in God's great love for the world, he sent his son. And instead of turning away from people, God turned away from the son. Subjected him to the punishment on the cross that not only we deserved, but we are all heading toward apart from Christ. And so we should understand this about the gospel, that all of those, all of those who are in Christ have been absolved and will no longer go through the punishment, the same punishment that Christ went through, that is being turned away from God, being sentenced to death through the hands and the wrath of God, is still the very real, present future of all of those who do not come to Christ. We need to understand that the death of Christ did not just cover all people for all times, no matter what. The death of Christ and the propitiation of Christ is for those who are in Christ. And so there is a real danger for all of those who are not in Christ, that they are still subject as enemies of God to the wrath of God. Now the gospel comes very, very important to our lives, doesn't it? When we walk into the world, we recognize that we should see more people mourning. We should see a lot of people mourning because that's the real future for people who do not know Christ, mourning. And Jesus is saying in Matthew 4, blessed are those who mourn now. Right? Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Because you have the opposite of that in Luke 6.25. When in Luke 6.25, you could call them anti-beatitudes. They're the, they're the woes. And Jesus says in the woes in Luke 6.25, he says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. That just sounds like a backwards beatitude, doesn't it? And then he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Did you see, did you see the opposite happening? Right, right now in our world, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But for those right now who are wanting worldly happiness, what does it say? Woe to you when you laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Why? Because happy are those now who mourn over their sin, respond to Jesus through repenting of their sin and placing their trust in him, because they shall be comforted. But woe! to those who find all their happiness and all their joy and all their contentedness in the world that it is right now and who want to fill their lives up with everything for now. Woe to you. You shall mourn and you shall weep. Those are promises of the kingdom. All the promises of the kingdom aren't just all positive. right? There is retribution. right? There is punitive promises in the kingdom when we do not respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is one of them. Woe to you who seek your happiness here. Woe to you who will not mourn over your sin here, for you shall mourn and you shall weep. Today is your day to live it up because in the future you will mourn and you will weep. See, the kingdom promises for the Christian, though, that we should be comforted. 
And so the response to the gospel for the non-Christian is that you would recognize that when you are separated from a holy God, that you would respond by turning from your sin and placing your trust in him. And you can call it repent, you can call it turn, you can call it forsake, whatever word you want to use that indicates the fact that you are turning away from yourself and you're turning to God, recognizing that you yourself aren't going to God. God is bringing you to himself through what Christ suffered on your behalf. You respond to that message, that gospel. And you too, because you've mourned over your sin and your wretchedness and your despair, will be comforted. It's the promise of the gospel. That also, for the Christian, we, we mourn. Right? We mourn over our sin. That's why we can be called Christians, because we mourned into repenting that led to salvation. But it, it didn't stop, did it? If you're a Christian in here, did the mourning over your sin stop? It didn't, did it? Now, the positional righteousness in Christ, that was a one-time thing, wasn't it? And you turn from your sin, you place your trust into Christ, bam, you are a child of the kingdom. But there's something else peculiar that continued happening in your life. You continued mourning your sin. You still had sin in your life. You still have sin in your life. And actually, the mourning over your sin, although it isn't a reason for separation between you and God because that's been paid for, it is a reality that your sin is still a very real evidence of the separation that did exist and the reason that Christ had to come die for you and that Christ has now placed his Holy Spirit in you, leading you to sanctification, a big word saying God is conforming you to the image of Christ, causing you to mourn greatly just as God mourns over sin. You as a Christian are mourning more and more and more over sin in your own life and in our world. And so when we look at this verse in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. We're talking about people who are mourning who are going to be saved or, or who are being saved. But we're also talking about the Christian mourning of those who are saved. You ought to be mourning over sin. Me and my wife talked about it this week. You know, we, we talk about mourning over our own sin. We talk about mourning over the sin that we see in the world. Uh, and we don't just point at the world saying all the sin's out there. We also look in the mirror and say the sin's here. And it causes us a really great mourning. And here's the wonderful part about that. And there are promises for that. There is comfort for the Christian who will mourn over their sin. But there is a lack and a fleeting comfort for those who will not mourn over their sin. Because if you won't mourn over your sin, you shall mourn and weep. Well, you may laugh today, and you shall mourn and weep. And there's even a small warning there for Christians who think that dabbling in sin is okay in your life because you're saved. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn, you shall weep, even as a Christian, to recognize that any sin you could be dabbling in right now, although it may be pleasant to you in the present, there's coming a time in the very near future where you shall mourn and you shall weep. So it's best let us mourn and let us repent. But we have to ask the question, don't we? How can a perpetual grief over my everyday sin, isn't that what it sounds like? Right? How can, this sounds pretty, pretty bum, pretty bummed out, this Christian life you're, you're telling me to live. Every day I just got a mourning. I'm wretched. Every day I got to look in the mirror. I can't give myself positive self-talk. I look at myself and say, you're, you're bad. You're terrible. Go to work and do your job. You're not going to do great. You don't even look great. So how can somebody like that actually leave with any kind of 
kingdom happiness, any kind of genuine happiness? I'm glad you asked, because we can. Remember that word blessed means makarios, happy, blessed, and fortunate. And that's the state of the believer. Happy, blessed, and fortunate are we who have Jesus Christ as our greatest treasure in the kingdom of heaven as our home. One commentator says it this way, happiness or blessedness does not come in the morning itself. Did you recognize that? It didn't come in the morning itself. Happiness comes with what God does in response to the morning. Remember, the agent of the happiness is always God. And you need to, this is called, uh, these in the Beatitudes uh, might be helpful for you to write it down in your notes, are called divine passives. Divine passives, right? It's passive because it's like, well, where is the happiness coming from? Well, it's a passive happiness. It's not something that's being acted upon like an active verb, right? Like, I kick the ball. Well, that's an active verb, okay? Passive, divine, means that it's something that God is doing in your relationship to him, and it's something that God does. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, by who? Passive, divine. By God. As we live our Christian life, as we await the glory of God, as we enter into the kingdom, God is providing us with the happiness. Why? Because the happiness comes with what God does in response to the morning. Our morning is not the thing to revel in, you recognize. Your morning should lead you to just that, morning. And morning without hope is just morning. Wretchedness without a way out is just wretchedness. But happiness comes from understanding what God does in response to your mourning. Offering you, the commentator says, the forgiveness that such mourning longs for. Godly mourning brings God's forgiveness, which brings God's happiness. Aren't you happy when you're forgiven? Look over at your spouse and say, you're happy when you're forgiven? You're happy when you're forgiven? The same way. When we are forgiven by God, we are happy. Mourning is not merely a psychological or emotional experience that makes people feel better. It's not what we're talking about. It's a communion with the living, loving God who responds to the mourner with an objective reality, the reality of divine forgiveness. Now, I, I want to point this out because there are people, and particularly in my, my generation, okay, who uh, the gold star would be, well, I mourn better than the, the best of them. Right? There is no one who mourns more than me. Right? The mourning is now the idol. i got to wake up every day and i got to mourn. It's like, no, 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 no. No, you wake up every day. And you recognize that God brings the happiness to the mournful. The active agent in the equation is God and not you. You know what I'm saying? If you know what I'm saying, you know what I'm saying. If you don't, let's move on. We ought to, you need to put this in point number two. You need to rejoice in your renewed position. You need to rejoice in your renewed position. And there are so many Christians I know, so many Christians I know, I mean, you would, you would think that they are bound for hell for eternity. When you talk to them, when, we're around, when I'm around them, I'm like, do you know who you are? I, I mean, I know who, who you are, and that's, you know, okay, I wouldn't want to be you, but, do, but who you're going to be, right? And kind of who you are now. Like, do you know who you are? You are a child of the kingdom of heaven. And why, why would I want to be anything else? Like, why so dejected every single day, not over your sin, mourning over sin, but just everything? I mean, do you not know the hope that awaits you? Do you not actually know the gift of what you have around you right now in the community of believers? 
in the kingdom outpost that is Compass Bible Church, awaiting for the kingdom of God to arrive in its totality. We need to rejoice. I think about it this way. You know, every Christian has a B.C., you know, before Christ, right? Don't we all? I have a B.C., and I'm like, that was, that was bad. I mean, that was just not, not great, right? Completely separated from the God of the universe, ignorant and at enmity with God. And now, I have a new position in Christ. The, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'm a new creation. I have a new nature. You knew me before I was 15. You didn't know me. I'm not that man. I'm a new man in Christ Jesus. I'm new. I have a renewed position. And even if you look at me on the outside, I may not look as great as I did at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. It's okay because the Bible also says this. Although my outer flesh is wasting away, inwardly I'm being renewed day after day after day after day. And I know that although even this is just going downhill, in here it's going uphill all the way, all the way to eternity. You should rejoice in your renewed position. And it's going to take in you a long-term uh, outtake on life, a long-term perspective. A lot of you, you're, you're looking to retirement. I'm encouraging you to look beyond retirement. Look toward eternity. Because if you look to retirement, I mean, I'm doing it. I did it this last week. I'm looking at my retirement. Bad week to look at your investments. Don't do that. I encourage you. But I did it. Uh, looking at my retirement and putting all the numbers in. And I'm like, that's great. I'll have some money. But, like, it's a lot of, a lot of suffering from here to there. And from what I hear, it doesn't stop when you get to retirement. It just keeps going. I'm like, what real joy is there to just look to retirement and, and then what? And I got to use all that money to pay for my hospital bills, right? And then my kids are going to need some of it. Then the government's going to take more of it. You keep thinking about it. It doesn't sound that happy, does it? But when I think of eternity... And I think of the investments I made in the kingdom, those always appreciate. Those never depreciate. I never have to ask God, how's the Silicon Valley Bank doing this week? I think, how is the kingdom treasury this week? Doing better than ever. Doing great. Better every day. And rejoice in your renewed position. Every Christian, you, you may have days to mourn over in the past, but I would encourage you that you have more days to look forward to in the future. Uh, and it all does continually focus around you, focusing on this one thing. And you can jot down Psalm 32, because this is where you find it. Here's what you rejoice in, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. There's what we're rejoicing in. There's where our new nature rejoices. We have a new position. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now here's something to mourn over, verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is somebody who's living in sin. Okay, they will not repent from their sin. They forget the blessedness of those whose transgression is forgiven. That's where the happiness is found, those who acknowledge and admit their sin before the Lord. But we have those who will not. And I love even the divine reality that the, that the hand of God is upon you who will not acknowledge your sin and repent. 
and you may, you're dealing with anxiety and you're dealing with pressure and you just feel like there's a million pounds on your chest and you, you're having all these issues in your life and your strength is dried up. Your arms are weak. Your life is weak. You feel like you can't get up. You feel like you can't go to sleep. Sounds like verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. It's, it's, it's breath. Pause. That's a good pause right there. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. There's a time that God could be found, and Hebrews tells you that day is today. There is a day where you're not going to be able to find God, not in, at least not in a reconciliatory manner. You will find God, but in a retributional manner. But today is the day where you can find God for the forgiveness of sin. You are a hiding place for me, verse 7, a cleft. You're a cleft. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct in verse 8. I will instruct you. This is God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It's quite a bit different position than the other person without forgiveness is in. I mean, we have the God of the universe who says, I will be your teacher. And we know that as Christians to be true with the Holy Spirit, don't we? And the fact that we're even talking about the words of Jesus Christ. I will be your teacher. I will guide you. I will instruct you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and my eye will be upon you. Christian, rejoice in your renewed position. That the eye of the Lord is on you. But it says in verse 9, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. How many people do you know? They're more like a horse and a mule. Don't look to your left or to your right. But, they, but it's, it's so much work to keep them like desiring to walk with the Lord. And you sit there and you're like, why are you like a stubborn donkey? Like, do you not know your renewed position before the Lord? He has his eye upon you. He wants to guide you and he wants to direct you. And all you want to do is kick off over there and go your own way. And then you're stuck in the thicket. You're stuck in the crevasse. You're over there, and you can't get out of where you're at. And then God needs to come over there and get you. And it's like you don't recognize how happy the position of being a renewed Christian is. Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Well, many. You want to run away from God? Many are the sorrows. As a matter of fact, back to Luke 6.25, you will mourn and you will weep. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You want comfort? You ain't going to get any better comfort than being surrounded by the love of God. And that person is the one who trusts in the Lord. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Do you, do you hear this? This is the position of the Christian. A new position. Be glad, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. But Pastor Hayden, I thought you told me I got to mourn for my You do. Because you're not going to get to the rejoicing, and you're not going to get to the shouts of joy, and you're not going to get to the gladness and the happiness if you're not mourning over your sin. But I'm telling you, all of those who mourn over their sin and repent will find themselves Rejoicing and being glad in the Lord because they are blessed 
because their transgression is forgiven and their sin is covered. Romans 7.18, even the Apostle Paul says, I know that I, am, that I have nothing good dwelling in me. Paul says that is my flesh, not to be confused that the Holy Spirit's also in me. He's not talking about that. He's talking about his flesh. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. All good things that are in me are from God. I love that. Paul wants to let you know, regardless of what goes on in the world, regardless of any good you see in me, all of it comes from God. However, my station has been forever changed. I was here, now I'm here in the kingdom of God. I was an enemy of God, now I'm a friend of God. I was in the dark, now I'm in the light. I was destined for hell, I'm heading for eternity with God. It's my mourning over my sin that has moved me to rejoicing over the answer that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to get the Venn diagram back out, right? There's some, there's some things in our life, even when it comes to comfort, that we'll be able to see uh, some real practical ways you and I can receive the comfort from God even in our life today as Christians. Because we have to ask, what kind of comfort should I expect in the Christian faith? What kind of comfort should you expect? That is a magnificent question. And I hope you ask this question all the time. What comfort should I have as a Christian? Because there's a lot of comfort you shouldn't expect as a Christian. Okay? But there is a lot that you can, and sometimes those overlap a little bit in the world, at least the way the world looks at the way you're comforted. So what kind of comfort should I expect? You should know that the word in Greek for comfort is the word parakletos, which if you know your Greek, you're like, no way. Because that's the same word used for the name of the Holy Spirit. Parakletos, same word. Same word in John 14. Same word here in Matthew 5, 4. Parakletos, you should be comforted. Now, of course, usage denotes meaning you know what that means in language, okay? So we're not talking about the Holy Spirit primarily, explicitly in Matthew 5, 4. So we have to know, what is it talking about explicitly in verse 4? Well, parakletos, comfort, is to cause someone to be encouraged or consoled. It means to encourage, to console, either by verbal or nonverbal means. Okay, That's just the, the wooden definition of the word. And so how, how can a Christian be comforted? Why don't you, before we define it, why don't you at least write down in point number three on your outline that you should anticipate comforting and encouragement. Before we even get to playing that out, just, just put it that way on your outline. You should anticipate comforting and encouragement. You should, as a Christian, you ought to anticipate it. You should expect it. But here's, here's the ways I, I want you to expect it. The way that I believe God makes it clear in his word that you should expect it. And to expect it the right way, I want you to go back to Matthew 5, 4. I want to show you something I think is really important for you. As you prioritize the kind of comfort that you're going to receive, you should prioritize it in a certain way. I want you to notice something. Are you there? Okay, thank you. Man, oof. All right. Are we there? All right, good, all right, cool. All right, look at the Beatitudes again. I want you to notice something. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Did you notice the tense in verse 3? The tense? It was a present tense, wasn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's now. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's now. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit now, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. Now, 
Look at the, look at the verse 10 in the, following, in the following Beatitudes. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, present tense, right? For they shall be comforted. That's a future tense. Did you notice that? Did you notice the change right there? Boom. You had one that was present, present, and now you have one that is present and in future. What should that do for you as a Christian? It should help you understand that the primary area of comfort that you should be expecting in the Christian life is an eschatological comfort. Now, I don't say that to try to take any real comfort today away from you, but what it should do is highlight the magnitude of comfort that is on its way for the Christian. I don't want to minimize the comfort of God in your life today. I want to maximize the reality of the comfort that I can imagine you're not even thinking enough about. Because scripture is. Because I want you to notice something. I was going to vamp for a minute. When you look at that verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Like if there was something that should be in my mind, in your mind perhaps, that should be a future tense, shouldn't it be that one? For yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Yours will be. It's coming. It will be. But that's not what it says, is it? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's yours now. Not in its consummation, but the scriptures make it clear, like we talked about last week, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a down payment. You've been sealed. That's your inheritance waiting, and it's yours now. That's your present state. But in verse 4, it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why the change? Because the point is, there's coming a time when those who, in Luke 6.25, those who are laughing and those who are just living it up here, there's coming a time where they will mourn and weep. Notice that too. Woe to you who laugh now. Present, woe to you now. For you shall mourn and weep. Eschatological. Meaning at the end times. As the end times come, as Christ returns. That's what that big word means. It entails the fact that Christ is coming back. And at that time, you will be comforted you'll have your socks comforted off. I mean, there is going to be no end to the comfort that you're going to receive as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And there is no minor amount of comfort in the context of the magnitude of comfort coming. There is no uh, alternative amount of comfort that you're going to have here, which there are, and we'll get to those. But there is none that can compare to the comfort that is coming when Christ comes and takes his church we got to sit right there because that's where the text is. They shall be comforted. It's coming. And you need to focus on that primarily. Primarily. Okay, because if we can handle that, I want to give you some other ways that we can expect comfort now. But it should never, it should never outweigh the comfort that's coming. Because all of the comfort that you even receive now is either a down payment or a... A microcosmic example of what is to come. All of it's pointing there. So I don't want to point you here, you know, at the pond when there's a vast ocean over there and tell you this is it because it's not it. But it is water and it does give you a glimpse to the vastness that's coming. Okay? So there we are. We should anticipate comforting and encouragement. It's primarily an eschatological comfort, Revelation 7, 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Come on. The lamb is in the midst of the throne, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in the midst of the throne, whom the Father, sorry, he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
that's the immense amount of comfort that's coming. Your shepherd, your physical shepherd, will not be this guy. All right, this is not going to be this guy. You want to mourn, you should mourn now, okay? Because the shepherd that's going to guide you to springs of living water and wipe away every tear from your eyes, that is the Son of God. You should comfort in that. But there are some other things. There are some ponds over here. And, I don't, and by ponds, I don't want you to, to, to truncate. I don't want you to, to think less of these things because they're just as glorious. And you're going to notice they're very important to your life. Because you're also, on top of an eschatological comfort, you're given a divine comfort. Even in here, right now, in your life as a Christian, you are given a divine comfort. You remember that same word, parakletos, for comfort, is the same word that we use in the Greek for the word Holy Spirit? Which is funny, because I want you to know, the word spirit comes from the word pneuma, okay? And what's interesting in the Greek, if Jesus wanted it to say pneuma, or Holy Spirit, or spirit, he would have used the word pneuma, but he didn't, because he wanted to describe an important characteristic of who the Holy Spirit is by calling him comforter, or in the ESV, helper, KJV, and other translations, comforter. But that word, parakletos, is often translated as comfort in the New Testament. And so if Jesus didn't want us to look at the Holy Spirit as the comforter and the helper, he would have used a different word. And he used the word parakletos because it shows us that there's a real divine comfort present in the life of the Christian today. John 14, 25 through 27. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. It's Jesus saying this to the disciples. But the helper, there it is, the parakletos, the KJV uses the word comforter. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send you in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's the promise of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But as a good pastor, I don't, want to, I don't want to only give you half of what the Holy Spirit does. You should know the other half of the Holy Spirit that actually would cause you to mourn over your sin. John 16, 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So if you think that, excuse me, that the comfort that you're going to have from the Holy Spirit only allows for comfort and peace in your life every single day without respect of anything else, you miss the, the way... The Holy Spirit works in the life of believers because it does give us comfort, but you realize the comfort comes because he has convicted us concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So you can have peace, you can have comfort because he's done the job of the third person of the Trinity, which is clarifying to you sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come, which leads you, as you mourn over that, to kingdom happiness as the Spirit is comforting you and giving you peace. You should expect a divine comfort. You should also inspect, expect a communal comfort. Put that in your notes. You should expect a communal comfort. Ephesians 6.22, we have the Apostle Paul talking about Tychicus. And he's explained to them how they should receive him. And what the effect of Tychicus as he goes to Ephesus. We have a great Christian man going to Ephesus. Ephesus? Ephesus. And here's what it says. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us. So you may know what's going on here because we're a long way away from you. Uh, and we want to get you caught up on all the things Paul and his companions are doing. But here's, here's what the hope is. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that he may comfort your hearts. That he may comfort your heart. Something that we got to understand as Christians is that other Christians are designed and positioned to give comfort to one another. 
and I got a lot of, a lot of application, but simply this. If you don't find yourself neck deep in the community of believers, you shouldn't expect a lot of earthly comfort. You don't find yourself neck deep in the body of believers, you shouldn't expect a lot of earthly comfort in your Christian life because God invests so much comfort within the body of believers. The, the Psalms say, I have never seen a holy one of God do without or lacking in bread. Why? It's not because he drops it through the, the sky and lands on your table. It's because there's a myriads of people who are believers who aren't going to let you go without because they are the comfort that God is giving you. Which brings me to the last one. You need to expect a divine communal comfort. A divine communal comfort. Eschatological comfort, a divine comfort, a communal comfort, and a divine communal comfort. I love this because the way that Christians must comfort one another isn't subjective based on that person's thoughts of what comforting is. Here is the explicit way that we are to comfort one another. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. If you want to comfort me, you better learn from the God of all comfort. Okay? There ain't nobody going to know about comfort more than him. If you want to comfort me, learn from him. Verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction. Here, now. Right? It's one of those realities we have as Christians. Who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able... See that? Who comforts us in all of our afflictions, not so we can sit in our own comfort to not do anything with it, but we're comforted in all our afflictions by the God of all comfort, so for the very purpose that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So you should not expect the comfort of God if you're not expecting to use the comfort that God gives you to comfort other people. That's tough, but it's real, and that's where real kingdom happiness comes from in the family of God. When I'm not just trying to soak it in and take it, I'm trying to give it because that's my job. And what is the way that the Christian is going to give comfort? So he's going to comfort us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with what? The comfort that we ourselves are comforted by God. So I'm not going to receive the comfort of God and then try to give comfort in my own ways. You know, I'm not going to try to give perpetual self-affirmation. Sometimes to give somebody comfort, you don't need to give them perpetual self-affirmation. You need to give them the comfort of God. What is the comfort of God? Then we have to ask the question, what does the Bible say is the comfort of God? Because sometimes comforting means happier those who mourn. See, we can't just continue defining comfort and happiness in a worldly way, or we're never going to be able to comfort people, that is, brothers and sisters in Christ, with the comfort that comes from God. And you should not, you should not make people take a kind of fleeting comfort that you've learned from the world over the comfort that comes from the God of all comfort. We should learn how does God comfort people. He comforts them through his word. He comforts them with a truth in love. Some of us just want to love, 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 and give them no honest reality of biblical scripture. But then some of you who love that statement want to give people all the truth of the biblical scripture and not the truth about the love of God in scripture. you got to give them both. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Right? If you cannot equally say, as Christians, we're going we're gonna to share in the sufferings of Christ. Amen. But if you can't say along with that that we also are going to share abundantly in comfort too, you don't have a biblical appraisal of the Christian faith because it's both. You're going to be comforted 
You're going to have an abundance of comfort, and you're going to have an abundance of suffering if you're doing it the way that God says to do it. And that's why, when I started this sermon, I said, for those who mourn, for those who are dejected, that's you, you need to listen. And if it's not you, it should be you. Because this should be every one of us. And we're invited to mourn over our sin, to trust in Jesus, and experience the kingdom happiness that God promises for every one of his brothers and sisters in Christ. That we have, as children of God, as heirs to the throne, as brothers and sisters of Christ, as a friend of God, the ability to have kingdom happiness here as we're waiting for it to be revealed completely and totally in the reign of Christ. Let's pray. God, we, I pray, we're able to not only take a little bit from the sermon to apply to our life, but that the whole thing, the, the whole uh, prospect of comfort and mourning all comes together, not as a ethereal, paradoxical reality of the Christian faith, but as a concrete uh, experience in our life that we recognize when we mourn, uh, we get to rejoice and because we are able to count our sins and our transgressions as forgiven. So that's my prayer, and I pray that we become a church of all comfort. Not that we comfort people uh, in their lifestyle choices that aren't, that aren't, don't line up with yours, because what it is is it shows that, God, we're separated from you. And so I don't want to make anybody feel comfortable in Christ who are not in Christ. And I recognize that it's for all sin in the world, not just the popular sin, not just the completely uh, dejectable sin, but all sin separates us from you, and all sin makes us enemies of you. And so I pray that this church would be bold in the gospel, that we be bold in sharing the true comfort of Christ found in the cross, that we would weep and we would mourn, we'd find ourselves at the foot of the cross, and we would turn to you, the only true God, and the one who you sent, Jesus Christ. And as we respond to him, we would find what it means to truly rejoice here, that blessed are those truly who mourn, for they will be comforted. God, even as we finish up with this last song, let us, let us sing, let our hearts match what our mouths speak, that we would worship you and that we would go into this week, not forgetting what we've learned here, but taking it with us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.